You're listening to Deep Cut. I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. Ooh. I'm Eli Sands. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's me. <laughs> hey, friends. You're listening to Deep Cut. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Each episode, we focus on a director by discussing their most popular film alongside a personal favorite from elsewhere in their filmography. We'll also talk about each director's life and career to bring in context that may help us view the movies as they wanted us to. So this week, uh, it was my pick, and I chose the granddaddy of documentary (laughs) filmmaking, Mr. Frederick Wiseman. What were the movies that you picked for us to watch? Today um, is going to be a special episode because right before, I guess an hour before, we we, we decided that instead of tackling two movies this episode, we're going to tackle three movies. So the most popular pick is Wiseman's first feature, um, 1967's Titty Cut Follies. And... Well, the personal favorite I was going to bring to the episode was uh, his 2015 film In Jackson Heights. And just by by chance, we all ended up also watching uh, Mr. Wiseman's most recent film, City Hall, which just premiered this year at New York Film Festival. Let's get into some brief contextual information and background for Mr. Wiseman. I keep on calling him Mr. Wiseman. I just, it's out of like a sign of respect. Gotta show respect. <laughs> I gotta show respect. And also he's like, he, I don't know. I don't know. He, he's he's an old man. I don't know. He's I, old I, as fuck. He's pretty old. He's, <laughs> he, he's a legend. Is he, old, is he older than Varda? I feel like he might be older than Varda. I think he is. I think he's older than Varda when she died. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. he is. Was he ninety two now? It's incredible. I think he's ninety. I think he's, he's ninety. Ninety. He, one of yeah. the things that's in 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 Jackson Heights, there are scenes that take place at a nightclub, and to imagine like <laughs> little old Frederick Wiseman filming in a nightclub. Mm-hmm. Well, literally fact, little and old. <laughs> Frederick Wiseman made a film called Crazy Horse that's all set in a strip club. Uh, and he just made a documentary about a strip club because he wanted to. Wow. Add it to watch list. Add it to watch list, everybody. <laughs> okay. So, big granddaddy, Mr. Frederick Wiseman, was born January 1st, 1930. What a fucking birthday, guys. What a crazy birthday. He was born into a Jewish family in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, he got his Bachelor of Arts in at Williams in 1951, and he got his Bachelor of Law at Yale in 1954. He also was was in the U.S. military for a few years, um, from four, 54 to 56, and then lived in Paris after that before coming back to the U.S. and he started teaching law at Boston University. And while he was teaching law at Boston University, he used to bring his students on field trips to this facility, which his first feature, Titty Cut Follies, is based on. So Wiseman had been making movies ever since um, Titty Cut Follies, and he has made around 47 features in his lifetime and only one of which is a narrative feature which is called the last letter um in 2002 which i haven't seen but it's supposed to be like uh like a theater piece 
like brought to screen, which is very interesting um, considering Wiseman's approach to documentary making. He also has directed theater, right? Yes, yes, yes. I think he's a big fan of theater. I think there was a... Um, I was reading this interview that Errol Morris did, or this write-up that or Errol Morris did on Wiseman's career, and he was talking about how he was at a film festival with Wiseman, and Wiseman did not seem interested in any of the movies playing there, besides his <laughs> own, and instead just wanted to go watch the theater that was playing. I think they were in London, so he just wanted to see the, the theater that was playing, which is, like, really funny um, and awesome. Wiseman serves as a director, producer, editor, and a sound recordist on most of his projects uh, because he, he likes to keep his crew small. And almost all of Wiseman's documentaries are a part of his own like self-prescribed institutional series, with each film diving into a particular social institution. Wiseman himself says, My films are about institutions. The place is the star. And he always seems very curious about the world. Uh, there's a quote of him saying, In the movies, I'm trying to present a broad, complex, and diffuse portrait of contemporary life. I choose all kinds of different subjects, poor people, rich people, middle class people, in different situations, and in a variety of locations. In one sense, I'm making one long, thematically connected movie that is now 100 hours long. Is that number accurate? I don't know. Are all, all his movies just 100 hours altogether right now? I believe it. <laughs> I feel like it could be. It could be. Given the, it the feels like not of, enough. <laughs> of some of his projects, it's definitely an 100 plus hours, I would say. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it's like a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> like, it seems like there's so many movies. There's so many movies. If you guys don't, like, listeners listening in, don't really, are not familiar with Wiseman, like, he, the subjects of his movies are. It's like such a wide range. He has movies on like a boxing gym, a zoo, a high school, a hospital, uh, like the New York Public Library. It's it's really crazy. I didn't know that he called it his institutional series, but that makes total sense. Um, it is definitely about the place, and his style is very observational, of course. And yes, he does a lot of observing little vignettes that he'll stitch together to feel like a coherent multi-hour piece. To me, I think the magic trick is that he removes almost all context. There's no intertitle explaining anything. There's no direct-to-camera interviews that explains who people are. It's just he presents you, he throws you into the location, and you feel it out and you just observe along with him. And there's so much power in that. Yeah, I think for me, watching Wiseman films has a very distinct pleasure that is very much similar to just being somewhere and watching people, mm -hmm. which it really just is like observing people on the street or wandering into a random meeting that happens to be going on publicly and like listening to what people have to say. And he has done the work of maybe trimming a few hundreds of hours of maybe less interesting footage into the more interesting six hours or whatever it is. So um, they're long, but like they they have very, they're long, but every segment for me has some kind of interest that to me piques my curiosity and I think is based on his own personal curiosity about the situation. Maybe not even the institution, but just of that situation itself in its point of time, yeah. in its point of place. And it might just be me, but like I find it very interesting because I'm a person who really likes to just look at 
stuff. Like when I was a kid, I just looked out the window and stared at things. Yeah, me that's too. My, my parents. That's what my parents told me. I was like, I'll just stare out the window. <laughs> like when I was younger, yeah. I I loved like just watching like drainages, like water flowing down drains. Um, and I I like I was like trying to like think about that this week because I was like. I I just have an interest in watching how things work, and mm-hmm. Wiseman like also like loves loves showing the process of something, um and like process of getting a job done. If even if it's like the most like s- simplest job in the world, or like just like people like collecting trash or something, it, it, it but he makes it seem the most interesting by just focusing on every like small task that needs to be done, and I think through that. You also, as a viewer, you yourself understand the importance of whatever job these people are doing, and and like why what why they have value in society. Yep, definitely agree with that. Yeah, I also really like watching the trash getting compacted. So satisfying. Yeah. The trash <laughs> it was a very awesome can scene. Compact- anything like a sofa like a bed frame it was crazy fucking grill i was like (laughs) what (laughs) he definitely knows what he's doing he's like one upping it's like oh it can compact like a chair it can compact a basket it can compact a mattress it can compact a grill (laughs) like he's like building it yeah it's it's like the It can definitely compact you, Eli. You're very soft. (laughs) (laughs) You're soft and fleshy. It's going to eat you up. (laughs) Also seen in question from City Hall, just so you know. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so before we dive deeper into into the movies that we're going to discuss today, let's let's talk about what other Wiseman films we've seen. I can go first because I, I, I was the one that brought um, Mr. Wiseman to the table today. Um, I have seen 11 Frederick Wiseman films, which is like not even like a quarter of his filmography. <laughs> so sad. But I've seen Near Death, um, which is my all-time favorite Wiseman film. I didn't want to like bring it today because it is six hours long and it's it's a quite a brutal watch and I didn't really want to pair it with Titty Cut Follies, which is also quite a brutal watch. Um, but definitely do check it out because it's 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 a once in a lifetime like movie watching experience. I've also seen Ex Libris, the New York Public Library. Um, ballet, in which he fa- uh, he followed the New York ballet troupe as they went on a tour across Europe. And Boxing Gym, which is about this small boxing gym in Texas. It's really incredible. It's only 90 minutes. At Berkeley, which is about UC Berkeley. High School, which is his second film that he made after Titty Cut Follies about uh, a high school. Belfast, Maine which is about the, the, the city of Belfast, Maine, and National Ga- Gallery, which is about the National Ga- Gallery in London. And uh, I would say I, like, I'm like i a big fan of all of his features, and I am excited to dig deeper into his filmography because I feel like I've only scratched the surface. I'm sure there's a lot more gems to come. And yeah, I'm, I'm always excited to, to watch a new Wiseman film. Yeah, how about you guys? I've seen, so, I mean, a lot of over, complete overlap with all the things you've seen, but I've seen five films, not including the three that we're talking about today. There's Boxing Gym, which was also on your recommendation, Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. 
a great study of bodies yes. um, and movement. Um, and of the first Wiseman I ever saw was Ex Libris, which is, if I'm not wrong, a four or four and a half hour movie. Yeah, I think it's uh, four which hours. Is about... We saw it together, yeah. Ben. We, we saw yeah, it so that's my first together. Wiseman, which I saw with Wilson, uh, which was extremely memorable because I did not know what the fuck I was getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a revelation. Like, I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and context is like, I, I just remember watching it on a pretty, like, I was feeling pretty shitty that day. And I was like, whoa magic cinema magic and it was such an engrossing watch despite being four hours long and i knew because i had not seen documentaries as observational and as like with such a slight directorial hand that wiseman does that it felt like such a breath of fresh air and he had been doing it for like years and i just have not seen any of them (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. my first experience with wiseman that i feel like i should mention is you two coming out of the screening of Ex Libris and coming and finding me and <laughs> oh. just being like shaken. And that was the first time I do that not Wiseman... remember this. No, it's like, I do not remember, but cool. I remember sitting nearby and you guys came out of the screening and you were just like completely taken aback. And then I remembered the name of Frederick Wiseman. Maybe a couple years later, I started to watch high school. I got maybe halfway through it. And I felt like I sort of got the point that high school in the 60s was whack. And then mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I didn't watch any of his other movies until earlier this year when I watched Boxing Gym on Wilson's recommendation. And I thought that was really great. I really liked the rhythm of the editing and that every vignette felt like it was just the right length of time. And then this week now, I watched Titty Cut Follies, uh, City Hall, and In Jackson Heights. And it's been the only things I've watched this week. <laughs> They're so long. If you add up those hours, it's probably like maybe something that's, like 10, um, 11 hours. Of, something like that's nine hours, if oh, I'm not wrong. My goodness. <laughs> Ooh. But yeah, I, I, I want to dive into these movies. But before that, I, I do want to like talk about how uh, Wiseman himself approaches making his movies. So... He usually knows nothing about the, or knows very little about the subject that he's about to document when he's about to film. And he usually goes and he shoots for mainly four to six weeks per project. Um, he just like writes a letter. It, when he was talking about making City Hall, he, he just like wrote a letter to multiple um, cities, like hall, city halls in the U.S. And... Um, the Boston City Hall was like the most receptive and he met with um, Marty Walsh one time and Marty Walsh was very open to the idea of make of Wiseman making a documentary about what goes on in the City Hall and he just started filming the next day and he says that his shooting process is how he does research for his movies and then when he edits that's when he says he writes um, mm. uh, he writes the script of the movie. Um, so a quote for, from him encapsulates this really well. He, he says, With fiction, the idea for the film is transformed into a script by the imagination and work of the writer and the director, which obviously precedes the shooting of the film. In my documentaries, the reverse is true. The film is finished when, after editing, I have found its script. If a film of mine works, it does so because the verbal and pictorial elements have been fused into a dramatic structure. 
This is the result of the compression, condensation, reduction, and analysis that constitute the editing process for me. And I think this is really great because we 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 approached like introducing Wiseman as a very observational filmmaker. It doesn't seem like he has like a big hand in swaying you as a viewer, but I think there's a lot of things that he does in the edit like very quiet directorial or editing choices um, that really show you that show me as a viewer uh, that he's like trying to make a point with the movie. Let's 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 dive in. Let's dive in. Um, so let's. So the first movie we're going to talk about is Titty Cut Follies, which, as we as I said earlier, was Wiseman's first feature. Titty Cut Follies is about the the patient inmates at Bridgewater State Hospital for the criminally insane. Um, it's a correctional. It was a correctional facility in Massachusetts. The film was filmed over four, four weeks uh, in 1966, and it shows a series of activities and procedures that that go on at Bridgewater, including psychiatric interviews and hearings. Also, a really brutal scene of a force feeding of an inmate who refused to eat. Daily routines of the inmates, such as bathing and shaving, a birthday party and a funeral. Um, and all these scenes are, are framed by um, this annual variety show that the institution puts on called Titty Cut Follies. And uh, Wiseman was, was teaching classes, law classes at BU at the time and, and used to bring his students there as a field trip and when he decided to start making a movie he uh, Bridgewater um, seemed like a, a really good subject um, to tackle and he made a verbal agreement with the superintendent of the facility to, to shoot there which sort of came as a problem later on when the film was finished and was about to be released and um, the Massachusetts government tried to ban the release of the film before it premiered at the New York Film Festival in 1967, uh, citing that Wiseman would be violating the patient's own privacy and their dignity. And they successfully got it banned from showing the film publicly after the premiere. And um, the Massachusetts Superior Court judge ordered recalls of the film from distribution and ordered all the copies being be destroyed. Wiseman appealed this decision, and in 1969, it was finally allowed to be shown only to doctors, lawyers, judges, and other healthcare professionals. And then it was basically in 1987, uh, families of several of the inmates um, who died at the hospital decided to sue the hospital and the state, and it, it brought up this film again and how the film also. It, like may have also influenced the closing of a lot of these similar types of facilities, including Bridgewater itself. Um, in 1991, a court ruling um, allowed Titty Cut Follies to, to finally be released um, to the general public. I just wanted to give all this background information and context um, because I think it's important to to think about when talking about this film because I know it, it is not it's not an easy watch I I did not have a fun time watching this movie uh, and I don't think I'm gonna revisit it again but I do think it's important to think about what how the release of this movie or the making of this movie may have impacted um, 
the way the facilities have been or, or ran afterwards and yeah and and whether or not like the that that justifies showing like really like triggering material um in a film yeah it's a, it's a really hard watch i can i can sum up my reactions pretty concisely it feels like it's in the same category to me as Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing about the fallout of the genocide in Indonesia. It's it's very brutal and it's a necessary documentation of horrible things that people do to each other. Um, and it makes it a very hard watch because of that. I think partially some of Wiseman's decisions because it's his first movie and it's very rough, kind of end up leering at the inmates more than is necessary or gawking at them. Um, but then on the other hand, it's he also shows the inmates compassionately in a bunch of scenes and some of the workers compassionately as well. Even though he's clearly critical of Bridgewater, you do see him finding some balance in terms of you know, there's the scene where a nurse talks about a letter that she received from a former inmate talking about his rehabilitation and thanking her. And you start to see him able to capture the what's wrong about an institution as well as what is compassionate and human and specific. And that certainly is a thread that continues through all the way through City Hall. I think for me, my like watching Titicat, like knowing that Knowing, knowing the power of the images that he captured in the way that it's able to kind of change what was not right before makes it significant. But also watching it, I felt a little bit like it has these rough edges that I kind of wish it didn't in the sense that the talking about yeah. the gawking, that's definitely one of those things. Mm-hmm. But for me, like at the top of the podcast, you said that he's a, he's a, uh, the Wiseman is the director that launches you into situations with no context. But with Teddy Cut Follies, not having context was made it really difficult to understand the images that I was looking at. Yeah. And I think that was my main struggle with this. Like, it felt like I needed more information to understand. And part of it, I think, is because he was figuring out his editing style. Um, and also because it's a very short movie, you know? Yeah. It's only 80 so, minutes. Yeah. So there's not enough time to really understand what I'm looking at and for me to make sense of the images. And I think that was the thing that was really difficult for me watching it. Like, yes, it's all horrific. But then I wasn't sure what to do with that. Like, it felt like just an assault on the senses. And then, then what? That's kind of the big question I had. Or like, even if I'm looking at something horrific, I kind of want to know, how did we get here? Or like, why is it this way? Yeah. So that I'm not just responding to it because it's graphic, but so that I understand, not that I'm saying that what they're doing is right, but so I can sort of understand how did it get to this point? Or like, why is it like this? Why are these characters doing it this way? Like, regardless of whether it's morally right or not. So it, I found it very difficult uh, to kind of understand how to approach what I was looking at. So that's kind of how my kind of initial reaction. And and for example, the titular Titty Cut Follies. If I didn't know this from reading the synopsis, I wouldn't know that's what I was looking at. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I think it, it's like sort of what he's trying to do. But it, it's like so jarring to see the inmates or uh, like the patients like, at their worst, um, sort of, like, in the nude, like, being, like, 
like subjected to really like horrible shit and then like cut to the next scene where where they're like performing really happily or like it definitely threw me off when when I was watching it I think Wiseman learned to take a more rigorous approach to backstory and history where it's necessary whereas here nothing is explained I think to the detriment of the movie I agree with you Ben in City Hall and in Jackson Heights he starts to include scenes of people talking about the history of the place where Wiseman is focusing on right so he'll have Mayor Walsh talking about the things that the city has done wrong and that they're trying to amend. Or in In Jackson Heights, he'll show Daniel Drum or other community members talking about the death of Julio Rivera and the importance of that upon the community. I also want to note that Teddy Cut Follies has maybe one of the most pronounced editing choices I've seen in a Wiseman film, which is in that really horrifying scene of a man at Bridgewater being force-fed through a tube, Wiseman intercuts that with another man being shaved. And I think the effect of that choice emotionally is that you have some catharsis and release when you cut away from the man being force fed because you think the scene is done and you're being given relief. And then Wiseman cuts back to the man being force fed and it amplifies the horror. So while an effective choice, it is more pronounced than what you usually see from the editing in Wiseman, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think he pulls back in terms of like, like he's become more subtle over time. Yes. Yeah. I would say like, he's really learned how to like make his point without really beating you over the head with it. And I think with Titty Cut Follies, he's trying to beat you over the head with it because of these graphic things. But it's like the images are already graphic, but then he also uses cutting to amplify that, to juxtapose those things using mm-hmm. intercutting to make it even more um, horrific. And I think it kind of goes a little too far for me. And like, it feels yeah. unnecessary in that sense. Yeah. And I guess talking about it now, I realize, I mean, I've seen mostly his later movies and then Titty Cut. Um, he rarely goes, he rarely does intercutting between two scenes. He usually finishes the scene and then goes on. He's He's going on to the next scene. Yeah. He maybe will come back to the same place, but he won't, intercut two different timelines separately and like going back and forth between story A and story B. He'll usually show you the whole scene. So like with Titi Cut, the main one being the performance, just coming in and out whenever he wants is a this kind of jarring editorial choice, yes. which, which doesn't really make sense to me at least. And it feels like a, a strange skeleton to hinge the, the, the more important horrific imagery right. onto. Agreed. Right. Um, but that being said, I, I do think that in Titty Cut Follies, you you already see hints of of like a stronger like style to come about. Um, I think there are a few things like the the presence of Wiseman's camera in every scene and how his cameraman is able to just like get in there. Um, which is is really shocking. It, it's just really in, amazing to see like later on in his films, like where he's able to place the camera and how close he's about. Uh, he's able to like get to, to these subjects and these conversations. And um, what I still really can't get my head around is like the fact that these people still who are being filmed, even in his most recent films, um, act so normal, even though they're they're on camera. 
and I it, I feel like it it makes more sense for the like the older films because I guess the idea of of having having cameras in your face was not like a big thing back then but 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 in in 2010s and it's just really incredible how everyone still managed to, manages to act so natural in in his films and also um, I also wanted to bring up the the fact that how how he returns to certain characters uh, throughout the course of the the film we can see this also in in Jackson Heights and in City Hall but I I remember like there's this one patient who at the start of the film was already like complaining about how the um, him being in in the institution he knows that be- him being in the in the institution is not doing him good and it's actually making his mental state worse and he complains to to the, his handler and, and then they they do nothing and then later uh much later in the film he has this meeting with a with a group of doctors and he says the same thing and and they're like oh yes your your situation is not getting better but instead of like trying to move you or, or or like try to listen to you and your concerns we're just gonna change them the meds we're giving you and seeing how time has passed but also seeing how th- things have not changed for him is just it is like really a big punch to, to the stomach yeah and i think he employs that sort of like returning to to certain scenes or to certain characters a lot in in his films that feels like the quotation that you cited, Wilson, where he's finding the dramatic structure. There are like three scenes with that gentleman that you're talking about. Though also what you're saying about how he manages to sort of make himself invisible in this kind of magic way with so many of the people who go into mm-hmm. his movies. I do see gaps in that in Titty Cut Follies. I get the sense that some of the workers in Bridgewater, in particular the one psychiatrist, may have been a little emboldened by the presence of the camera in ways that I don't see in his later movies. In his later movies, feels completely invisible. It's so remarkable. People just let down their guard. I mean, maybe I've let down my guard with this adorable 90-year-old little (laughs) guy next to me, you know? yeah. Well, it's all about how he, he he just says all the time that he only shoots with him and his cameraman. And they're so light on, on gear that it's just... like I think it's just him, his a cameraman, and then an assistant who helps with camera. I mean, he does the sound. And John Davey, who's the cinematographer that he works with now uh, for most of his films, is just shooting handheld. Um and uh, I this is really funny because a funny quote that he he calls handheld wobbly scope, which oh, is yeah. so hilarious. That's a yeah. better name. I love that. <laughs> also worth noting that John Davy mostly uses telephoto lens, which means that he can be somewhat far away. Although you can definitely tell when he's close, and then when I feel like I'm close, I'm just like, wow, these people. How are they feeling so natural in front of the camera? Because I'm gonna clam up. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not yeah. gonna be myself if the camera's pointing right at me. Like you're sitting next to me at a boardroom, yeah. pointing the camera right at my face, and I gotta just do my work. Mm-hmm. That's not happening. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to go back to um, talking about that man that you were talking about in Titty Cut that we go back to a few times. The guy who says that he shouldn't be there because um, yes, he's a criminal, but he says that he should not be here because he's not. He doesn't require so-called the, the services of a 
asylum for uh, a mental asylum, I guess you call it. I'm not sure what's the right term for it. It's an institution for people with mental disabilities, but it's also a they are also considered criminals. Yes. So they are incarcerated there, but considered criminally insane. So he decides that he's not part of that part of that group of people. And I think to the credit of launching us into this with no context is that we are forced to understand these people as people first. We're not given yeah. a primer that, you know, yeah. there are people in this institution. There is no title card that tells you that this is an institution for, right. for the criminally insane. So you're you're not primed to think of them as that. You just have to take them as they are. There are many uh, long monologues by different inmates who just talk about stuff, not necessarily stuff that has to do with being in prison. Um, and they don't really necessarily, I would say, show any evidence that they should be there. Mm-hmm. You know, There's no sense that they're criminals or that they're insane yeah. sometimes. And I think that does give... There is some credit to be said about not doing that to us. Yeah. not giving us that context so that we can just take them as human beings. And yeah. Yeah. a lot of what they say just kind of makes, like, it doesn't seem insensible. Like, it, it, I know what they're trying to say, you know? It doesn't seem like you need to institutionalize those people. I know that there are studies about how patients in mental health facilities are treated differently because they are in a facility, right? So mm-hmm. there's this whole study they did, it, which I learned in sociology, which is that a bunch of people pretended uh, to require the, uh, the services of a mental health facility, check themselves in, and uh, by all accounts are considered quote-unquote uh, typical people. Um, but by virtue of being um, admitted to these institutions, the nurses and the doctors treated them as people who have uh, mental health issues. So everything they did that they considered quote-unquote normal was considered uh, a symptom. So they were taking notes about the going-ons in the institution and they were the notes were being written about them taking notes <laughs> as that being some kind of aberrant behavior wow. so it kind of is that kind of thing you know yeah. and i've seen that firsthand like as a person who has been admitted to a psychiatric ward and i've seen the way that nurses treat uh people that are that have been admitted to emergency mental health services and it's not pretty like even in this day and age like the attitude that they bring talking to these people is weird like they don't really talk to them like like, people talk to each other, you know? I mean, I saw a very big difference when I saw the nurses change shifts. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> like, suddenly there was, like, nurses that were much nicer and were not treating us weird. Yeah, so it is it's it is kind of to the credit of the film that it does expose these things. And, I mean, yeah. we still have these problems now. Like, um, and it's difficult, you know? It comes with a built-in power dynamic. And you're right, Ben, that Wiseman really elucidates that in ways that are very upsetting yeah and it, it's hard for you to approach it uh, it made it made me think of another scene in this film which was another cross-cutting scene in which you you see how these inmates are being treated cut with the this guy interviewing uh, like the the head psychiatrist interviewing a patient there and and talking to him about how how he was like sexually assaulting his his own daughter when that sort of like dawns on you like oh these are the people that are in this institution it, it it complicates your relationship with with the these patients but but also i feel like ultimately uh, at least for me i was like uh, you, you should still not be like treating people like this it's kind of why you got to look at each individual as an individual yes yeah. and that i think this is maybe the kind of thing that wiseman is trying to do with his entire filmography which is that 
every situation within the bureaucracy of government of whatever the institution is right like there's the big picture and then there's the human picture you know the one person yeah you know so you got to take it one person at a time to really understand what's happening on the ground level before you can understand it as say a government official like a mayor you know right so it is that kind of drilling down that makes his work so fascinating and i think it's why so many the thing that i really like about his films is like when he has a, a scene about somebody talking he has a lot of shots of people listening and it's including all the people within that process is is part of i would say the objective of his entire career almost to kind of get as large a cross section of entire human society as he can yeah. at least in america yeah and it is a bold task and he's still working at it <laughs> another way to put that is that he is mostly concerned with the everyday he doesn't really care about super exceptional people even the community leaders that he chooses to focus on are very connected to the everyday and the mundane. Marty Walsh in particular seems very in touch with everyday life. Wiseman just wants to depict the normal quotidian work and struggle for survival and continuity of an institution. And it's that specificity. It's both, it's a lot of breadth to cover an entire community or institution, but he gets a lot of depth by focusing on the everyday and processes like work. That's why his movies are this long. Yeah. They really need to be this they long. Really yeah. do. They really do. A critique that never comes into my mind is this should be shorter. It's always like, this is a perfect length or it should be longer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's nice. Uh, I think there's more of that. <laughs> no. That always feels... Yeah. Like, there's more of that, and there definitely is more of that. Yeah. He's just holding out on us. Yeah. I think this is a good time to jump into the to the lighter stuff. Let's do that. Okay. Let's you want to introduce... Do, do you want to introduce both of them at the same time? Because they're somewhat similar movies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that. The two modern-day movies, or modern-day of Wiseman picks that we're going to talk about today. First one's called In Jackson Heights. Uh, it's about... Jackson Heights. This is a community in Queens, which is very ethnically and culturally diverse. It was Wiseman's 40th film, and he hadn't really made a film. He's made a film about like small cities and small towns, but he hasn't made a film about just like a, a small community. But I, I think when you watch In Jackson Heights, you you get a big sense of like why he chose Jackson Heights uh, to portray because it's so it's like brimming with life there's so much going on and he chooses to focus in on a couple of larger themes those include lgbtq rights religion gentrification immigration and integration um, which I think are displayed really well through the different scenes that he goes back to in in Jackson Heights and the, the second film that we're, we're, we're going to discuss is City Hall, which came out this year, which is about the Boston City Hall and the workings of that office and the mayor, Marty Walsh. I would say that out of all of Wiseman's documentaries, City Hall is, is one of the only ones that has like a very clear protagonist in that we see Marty Walsh almost every few scenes. He just like pops up and you're like, oh, hey, yeah. hey, dude. <laughs> but when being interviewed about making this movie, Mr. Wiseman said that he believes that Marty Walsh is a is like a good politician because 
whenever he would go film a public event by the the office of the mayor or the city hall, Marty Walsh would always be there. And that is why Marty Walsh appears so much in this film is because whenever Frederick Wiseman was shooting, he was just there. Uh, which I think is really, really awesome. And I feel like, because I was reading a lot of like comments and I think I read something by the Boston Globe about Frederick Wiseman City Hall depicts Mayor Walsh in a very, very positive manner. In a way that I, I feel like the, a lot of people in Boston don't don't really like Marty Walsh. But I feel like out of, after the, these five hours, I really got a good, got a good impression of him. And I also got an impression of how local governance works in in ways to benefit the community that it, that it serves, which is a good reminder right now, at least in the U.S., that this is what governments should do. It should be serving its people. There's a classic biography of LBJ, which I, I, I have not read, but I know a quotation from, it's Joseph A. Califano Jr., I believe. So there's this classic understanding of, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what Califano says is that when the guy gets power, you actually see what he wanted to do the whole time. It's not so much the power corrupts. It like reveals true intentions. And I think you get right. a sense of Marty Walsh's intentions through the structuring of this movie and the kind of information that Walsh reveals about himself to the public. That pivotal scene in the veterans um, storytelling session when mm -hmm. Walsh takes the floor at the end of the event and he talks about his own struggles with alcoholism and the rehab that he had to go through and how he asked for help, you see him using his personal story of his everyday life to reach out to his constituents and offer them help. And that, I think, is one of the most important scenes in the movie because it's more, it's more personal and in-depth with a public leader than you tend to see wise men give. I think with Marty Walsh as kind of this, essentially the hero of the story, right? It's it's an odd experience actually when watching this. Like it's a lot, the, the most recent Wiseman film I've seen to see him have a protagonist is somewhat strange. He has, you know, recurring characters in, in Jackson Heights. <laughs> he has Councilman Drome uh, who appears a few times, but there is not that sense of, you know, profiling him as a person. With City Hall, he does essentially profile Marty Walsh as mayor of Boston. And it is somewhat of an odd experience doing that. It almost feels too much like it's valorizing the man. Mm -hmm. um, but it works because in any other filmmaker's hands, this would not feel odd, you know. And he is used as such a strong structural device to make sense of government because he is to his credit, seemingly embedded in the entire structure of government from his position downwards. Like he seems to care from his position and all the other positions below. So it works. Yeah. No, I feel like in some ways it sort of like rubbed me off in a wrong way. It's like, oh, like we are sort of like the pinnacle of like Obama era, like liberalism. Like, yeah, oh, a like, little bit. Yes. Like, like talk of diversity or, or I, I don't know. Um, it, it, Like some of the scenes just like, this is why government doesn't work some of the times, because people just talk around ideas and really, like, yes. they, they don't really want to get things done. But I think it's it's such a beautiful thing to have, like, Wiseman show 
this balanced view of 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 a government running it's it's a remarkable feat of both showing those micro vignettes and then extending them upwards and seeing how they're affected by the kind of macro level of policy that happens at the mayoral level and then even further there's a lot of mention of how the work that happens at the city government level gets affected by national policy under the Trump administration at the time of filming. And I think part of the thesis of the movie is how the masthead leadership in this movie at the mayoral level affects and trickles down to those smaller jobs and mm-hmm. constituents. And I think a very important scene comes in the last hour or so when there is a community meeting between the board of a marijuana dispensary that's planning to open up and local members of the community. The community is in Dorchester and it's a back and forth dialogue where the community members are expressing their concerns and trying to make sure that the business owners have done the proper legwork to understand the impact of opening up in Dorchester. And the board members of this business that's planning on opening end up saying, well, the city is sort of failing in its policy of how we should be going about understanding the effects Mm -hmm. of opening up. And it's hard to say who's really kind of more responsible for it, but it does. I also think it's important to note that most of the community members are black and brown and the people that were setting up the weed dispensary were white and Asian. Yeah, it's a very stark image when you look at it. And he, there's not much comment about it, but I think it really plays into what he's trying to say with the film, definitely in terms of racial injustice. And also it contrasts with the kind of idealistic speech making that we've seen public figures do elsewhere in the movie. It does contrast talk and the implementation of policy in the ways that you guys are both citing here. And I think I, I think that's like such an important scene as well, because I think that when talking about Wiseman's hand in editing and what he chooses to keep like this is probably I would say like a 15 to 20 minute scene of these people talking but I think you need to get the time with these people and actually Wiseman having us sit down and listen to all of what these each of these community members have to say about this project like not not cutting them off at any point and showing multiple points of view about this new weed dispensary opening makes you understand much more why there's pushback against it. I think the scene is definitely critical in showing that it's, you know, not this film that's about how government works because government doesn't always work. And in fact, it's most of the time not working. (laughs) But I think what's interesting is that uh, before we're talking about how he always includes shots and close-ups of people listening and most of his scenes are about community meetings, about talks, about speeches. So the people listening don't talk. But in this scene especially, we begin with people talking and then we have shots of people listening, but then all the people listening start talking. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely critical in like, it's a reversal of all the scenes we've seen before. So there's so many scenes of speeches about budgets and all kinds of boring crap. And then here we have scenes about people talking, talking so-called back to the people who are talking at them. And that's also in the scene slightly before that, which is about um, disparity studies, mm-hmm. about, I think, construction contracts. Yeah, yeah. And then one of the uh, listeners has a very long 
complaint about how his company has been struggling for 20, 30 years and not being able to compete with white companies who start out and immediately are able to get much, much more lucrative jobs. So he has this very large overarching structure where the scene types change over time. And I find it very fascinating when you look at it in a macro perspective. That's a great catch, man. When talking about how Wiseman structures his movies and how he patterns these like similar types of scenes and in different types of scenes to give you as a viewer like contrast in like in like seeing like this works or this doesn't work or um, and like allow- allowing you as a viewer to make your own conclusions based on how the context that he's he's presenting these scenes to you it, it is so it's just so effective and I, I don't I haven't seen any other director do this because they've never been able to like have the opportunity to film so much in order to like have this sort of patterning and I, I think this patterning is just as strong in in Jackson Heights where where you have these threads of religion and and activism and grassroots organizing just sort of like weaving in and out to form this like tapestry of a group of people living together and and then just trying to help each other out what really stood out to me on this rewatch was the scenes with these I call them now these um anti-gentrification warriors um, who who <laughs> were talking to local business owners about this new gentrification scheme called the the business improvement district um, and trying to get them to to rally against it because um, they were sort of like tricked into agreeing to have this scheme happen it was really like empowering to see because in, in an early in an early scene they were talking to this business owner in an, in an empty mall and he was talking about the problems of the, the the people that they voted for not representing them and not helping them and then later on you see that own business owner in a community meeting with other business owners trying to get them on board to fight back against the BID. And it's just like so beautiful to see these things build throughout the course of the film. But it's sad to hear that the BID did eventually go through like after the making of this movie, but it is a powerful like storyline to follow through the course of In Jackson Heights. It's one of the things that makes In Jackson Heights feel like such an essential film to me. I think of the two City Hall and In Jackson Heights, not that anyone's asking me to compare them, but In Jackson Heights feels like the more essential of the two movies because it is filmed at this precipice point for the community of Jackson Heights. And it's positioned right at this time when it's sort of a deciding moment in New York City history of what's going to happen with gentrification. The Business Improvement District is not something that I knew about before this movie. And if a hillside is kept in place by trees, and if you remove those trees, then the entire landscape slips away, then the business improvement district plan is like a deforesting machine. It's, Mm -hmm. I didn't understand how businesses are the things that keep a neighborhood and community stable. And that once you remove them and replace them with corporations, It's just a slip slide into evictions and gentrification. That sequence where someone explains that phenomenon is something that I think every New Yorker should watch. When we talk about the like the best movies about New York, 
in Jackson Heights is going to be at like the top of my list for a while, I think. Yeah, it's really great. I I, I feel like there's just so much to talk about with yeah. <laughs> in Jackson Heights. But I also I, I like do want to bring up like the, the, the like really shocking amount of times that I laughed out loud while watching this movie. Yeah. Like there's this scene um outside like a, a grocery store where they, he has a lot of there's like a lot of flowers on display. And uh, who who's saying talk dirty to me? That the, 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 the song talk dirty to me is playing. I know 2 chains isn't involved. Yeah. I don't, I don't <laughs> think he's the one who makes. I think he's featured. Yeah. Yes. Some, <laughs> yes but talk dirty to me is playing. And what Wiseman is doing is he's rhythmically cutting closer and closer into the flowers as uh, to, to the song Talk Dirty to Me, which is playing on one of the speakers in, in the market. And it, it made me laugh so hard. It's a surprising scene. Yeah. yeah. I mean, flowers are basically plant genitals. It makes mm-hmm. sense. Oh, it is Jason Derulo. <laughs> I was right. I was right. Derulo. Derulo. What's really great about Jackson Heights is, I mean, because... Jackson Heights is just such a dynamic and vibrant, interesting place. And the thing I noted was that I never know when a scene is going to begin. Like with all his, like with City Hall, like he, you know, he cuts what they call in Ozu films, pillow shots, right? Like different shots of landscapes between one scene to the other. But in Jackson Heights, I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be a scene. Right. Like like, he sort of like wanders around the street. Um, yeah, but I think it's it, awesome. It, it, he has a there's a very strict structure that he has begun to to abide by. I think in the last like ten years of his work, where he would start with like pillow shots, but he would always start with an extra wide going into a wide of the building and then going in. It's it's always just like slowly bringing us in, and at mm-hmm. the same time, at the end of a scene, he slowly takes you out. Yeah, a beautiful like book ending of each scene that lets us like recalibrate, like lets us prepare for a new space or like lets us like cool off and leave a space. I think it's really incredible how he eases you in and out of every sequence. But I think that's why like with Jackson Heights, like it's so different because it really feels like walking around a town because you're just getting shots of different shop fronts. But you never know which one he's going to wander into. Like, why do I have a scene of eyebrow threading? I don't know, but okay. Like, I'm okay with that. So awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sometimes I don't know why I'm watching something. It's still interesting, but it has that feeling of sudden surprise where you don't know what he's going to focus on. And it has that feeling of being led by Wiseman through the streets of Jackson Heights to see what he finds somewhat interesting or very interesting. Wiseman seems to be driven by the thrill of discovery and that structure that you're pointing out, Wilson, that scene structure of walking you in and then walking you back out of a vignette. It takes your attention away from things like finding tone or message or broad sort of superstructure or finding tension and what's he going to reveal next? It's more like, what is he going to explore next? And the fun is the immersion and stepping into each new thing and wondering what he's going to show you next rather than what is going to happen next. Just to to zoom in on a specific beat that I keep on thinking about in, in Jackson Heights, there is a celebration of the World Cup that goes from soccer, that goes from watching the game at night in a bar. That celebration starts once the team wins and then 
Wiseman it's sort the of Colombian soccer. Yeah, the Colombian yes. soccer team yeah. at the World Cup. Yeah. Wiseman very smoothly brings us to the next morning or a couple days later when a celebratory parade is happening. And then within that scene, before I even really knew what was happening, Wiseman starts to introduce police violence that is happening in the middle of this parade. And he shows you more and more until it's clear that that's the point of this scene. So many of his scenes sort of speak for themselves as to why they're important. But this one is like, that really snuck up on me and I think is a testament to his power of observation and editing. It makes a very clear point. Can I add on to that? Because yeah. I, I noted the exact same scene and what I realized is it actually... That scene sequence begins two scenes before, and it's a very, yeah. very sharp thing. I, Wilson, I think, noticed this because we both mm-hmm. segmented the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is that two scenes before, it's a scene in some kind of LGBT... Um, it's, it's at Make the Road, which is yeah, it's a Make community the organizing center that a lot of different groups use. So we have this trans individual talking about police um, harassing her. for a very, like She just has a very long monologue about being harassed by the police. And the scene after is a scene where a woman's outside. Um, it's a some kind of a, a town hall style celebration slash announcement where there's a woman at a podium praising the police for the installation of new slow zones in schools or something. So they go from one scene complaining about police, one scene praising police, and then to that scene that you're talking about oh. where there's the World Cup thing happening and then punching into the police doing stuff. Yeah. And... It is insane. It's <laughs> how crazy. He puts those three scenes together. Yeah. There there's a quote that Wiseman says where, where he talks about the sequencing of his scenes and it, 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 he says the structure must create the illusion even if it is temporary that the events seen in the film occurred in the order in which they are seen on screen. In this way the form of my documentaries can be called fictional because their structure is imagined and therefore may resemble plays or novels, the more traditional dramatic forms. So he, Whoa. like, by sequencing these things, he creates drama and he cre- he adds meaning to each of these, like, to the individual scenes themselves. And and later on, like, five more scenes after the, the soccer match celebration and subsequent pigs coming in and, and, and ruining the party, it goes to the a gay bar where... People are celebrating, and I think it is the same bar that this trans woman was was talking about earlier. Uh, because it, it, everyone seems to have be having a really great time in the bar, and then we leave, and then we see the exterior of the bar, and then the next shot is of a cop car across the road. And it's just like very subtle, but he he's just like always thinking about these threads throughout the film. In a way, in Jackson Heights is as much about the community itself and its inhabitants as the threats against that community, whether it is from the police, from the business improvement district, even a little bit from city government. I think you could make the argument that that's there too. But maybe that's just my mm-hmm. distaste for Bill de Blasio coming through, coloring my viewing experience. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about this uh, like very, very briefly uh, on our group chat, uh, Eli, about is there a structure that Wiseman goes back to when he does these films about institutions and at least with the three movies uh, including in Jackson Heights, City Hall and Ex Libris I do find somewhat of a similarity in the structure in the way that he's trying to tell you his point 
right? Or in trying to kind of portray some kind of meaning through the sequencing of scenes, right? And we've talked about this with City Hall, which is the people who are being talked to starts talking back. And it's similar in, in Jackson Heights when at the end, there's a lot of people coming up talking about their cases for Make the Road. But I think within Jackson Heights, there's a lot more of this seeded throughout the film where people are talking about their struggles. So it feels less of this kind of jarring introduction of the voices of the people, so-called. But there is that kind of increasing frequency of hearing people talk about their situations and their difficult circumstances, especially in, in Jackson Heights. At the beginning, we it seems to be about a bit of that kind of like small government stuff when we're in Councilman Drum's office, but then he kind of gets away from that and then he's more focused on the community, which is why I think in Jackson Heights feels a bit different from these films. Yeah. And then with Ex Libris, we have a similar thing um, where it begins with a lot of bureaucracy and stuff, but then at the end, there's a great scene about um, a very, very small library that's part of the New York Public Library Network, but it's a small library in Queens and it's staffed and provides for predominantly people of color community. And it's a community you don't really see a lot in the film. And then suddenly they come out and they have a lot of opinions about why they need more funding and they right. don't have as much funding as the big libraries. And yeah. he kind of makes that point in a similar way. So I think yeah. he kind of does that. I feel like he always begins with the bureaucracy and then he tries to find you the pockets, that small community that needs the most, who is not getting the most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It feels that way, at least, with this small sample size of his large filmography. Yeah. It feels like there is also usually some sort of late stage, not reveal, but reconsideration that he poses to you, mm -hmm. whether it's through the dispensary community conversation or this scene later in Ex Libris that you're mentioning, Ben, that highlights, actually in both cases, highlights racial disparities amongst the community. Mm -hmm. and how policy affects that. Okay, can I go on a very short comparative study that I thought of? Yeah, please. Um, yes, go. Between two things, and it's it's a bit disparate because I'm comparing a scene structure with the structure of a film, Ooh. which I think really, for me, helps me make sense of what Wiseman is doing, right? Um, I'll explain a bit later. So the first thing I want to talk about is in City Hall, where there is a scene of a group of workers paving a road with a writ some kind of writ material. I think they're making I think a bike for lane, schools, though. right? I'm not sure. But so it's just a very simple scene and it's it's got not much so-called political meaning. But it begins with us watching them lay out some kind of viscous liquid on the road. And I'm just wondering, what is this hmm. the whole time? I find it very interesting and it's glistening in the sun. It's very beautifully shot. And all I'm thinking is, what is going on, right? And then after a while, after they pave it, they spread this liquid around... Then they show you this kind of red, gravel, dusty thing. And then I realized that the liquid is glue. And then they're trying to paste this kind of red coloring onto the thing. So to create a bike lane or whatever it is, a slow zone or something. And so that's how that scene plays out. You're asking a question. He shows you something you don't really understand. You ask a question. And then he answers that question. And it kind of makes sense. And it's a very engaging viewing experience because... He's not telling you from the outset what's going on. He lets your own curiosity bring you in. Yeah. So that's my first example. So that's a very... Like, and I think he probably does that with a lot of scenes as well. But this yeah. is a very simple process-oriented way of looking at how he edits a scene. My second one is, if you look at in Jackson Heights, me not knowing much about 
New York City and its people that work in government or whatever. I don't know anything about Councilman Drum. I don't know. I know nothing about him. Okay? So we begin the film learning a lot about him. Not as much as we do about Mayor Walsh in City Hall, but we, we see what he does for the community. We see how entrenched he is within the community, like that he knows the people. It seems like the community likes him. He seems like he cares a lot about the people that he works for. But that's about all I get from him. I don't know that much. I just know he's a councilman. I don't really know what that means. But then that's within the first hour and we don't really see that much of him after that. But then later at the end, during the Queen's Pride Parade, he comes out with a feather boa. He's dancing. And Wiseman has this shot. He has a shot of the float. And it says, Councilman Drome, the founder of the Queen's Pride Parade. Yeah. Which I didn't know. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. That's why he's so passionate about the parade. Yeah. In the previous scene that we saw before. And I was like... Because one of the very first scenes yes. in the movie is an organization, or like a sort of meeting to organize the Queen's Pride Parade, which he is hosting. And he's exactly. talking and about the importance of the LGBTQ community in Jackson Heights. And it's what keeps them strong. Which happens yeah. in a synagogue also, for which yeah. is incredible. He's also one of the first two openly gay city council members. Oh. And for me, comparing the scene and the film just shows you how Wiseman is thinking about the pieces of society and how they... Like, like there is the very small thing of people gluing or whatever it is on a pavement. But it kind of shows you how he organizes this concept. It's like a Russian doll. Like, if the scenes are constructed like this, the films are constructed like this, but then the films are also a part of his 100-hour institutional series. Right. <laughs> and they also create another gigantic tapestry. So, like, there is this really interesting Russian doll concept uh, feeling when you watch all his films where you're trying sort of to figure like out a micro humanity macro. within America. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It just keeps going. And even in City Hall, like, Walsh seems like this huge figure, but he's just a mayor, right? He's huge in Boston, but when you when, when people talk about America, he's nothing. In the context of America, he's just a mayor. That's the governor, and I don't know what else. I don't know how the bureaucracy goes. Yeah, <laughs> We just made so all our there's Boston like, listeners mad, if we have any. So there's so many of these parts. It's just like little Legos that just stack up over and over again. I, I can't think of another director who manages to convey the convergence of macro community structure and micro individual every day. Can, can you talk about this scene that you noted down, Wilson? Which from one? In Jackson Heights. Which the line? Last one. <laughs> the taxi driver school. Oh, oh this is incredible. <laughs> so I love that guy. It happens really, it's the third last scene in the film. And it's this taxi driver school. And there's this guy, the, the instructor, who, who's teaching like things to do and things not to do to a bunch of, I think they're, they're South Asian taxi drivers to be. And he starts teaching them the cardinal directions in, like, the most ridiculous way. It ends up being like, he's like, oh, never ever smoke weed. And then he's just like, he calls out one of the one of the people in the class. And he's like, yeah, you, 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 you do that, right? And I was just, like, so shocked. And when Wiseman was getting interviewed for this, about this movie, he said, quote, I knew that I'd led a clean and moral life when God gave me that sequence. <laughs> And it, it, it's just really incredible to think about, like, yes, this is it's edited so tightly and structured so well, but how he gets these scenes is that he just goes to places and he just shoots. And if he gets a good scene, then he gets a good scene. If he doesn't get a good scene, he's not going to use it. 
it really feels like he films for the whole year, but he doesn't. He films for like four to six weeks at a time. But in and in City Hall, he like does one. film at least at different points in the year. Right. There's snow. Yes, yes. I think so. <laughs> there is snow. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, the seasons change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the word. There's for snow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I don't think he goes out for the whole year. Like he has different bursts of activity. Maybe he does a day at a, a, every few days. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. it does convey the passage but of time. It, it does feel like I'm watching yeah. a year in Boston. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's so <laughs> incredible. I cannot think of any filmmaker that does it like him. And I'm sort of like shocked to think that, like, why aren't other documentarians like employing this method? Unless yeah, it's like it's... really time consuming. But this guy has churned out 47 movies in one a year. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it one f- five hour movie a year. So. Yeah, better get on it at other documentarians. Yeah, I'm trying to think of more like other favorite scenes. I'm thinking now of early scene in City Hall where there's a woman and she's pronouncing two two, oh. two women. <laughs> she's she's marrying two women, and it is the funniest scene ever because she's doing so well between like she's going through the whole you know predictable. It's touching. I, I was like, it was like getting to me. Screech, screech. And. And she's just, you know, going, and she's doing so well. At the end, she says, I now pronounce you, I now pronounce you married. (laughs) And it's comic gold because it goes on for the entire sequence before she gets to that mistake. And she makes no other mistakes. It also fits in thematically as well because it sort of shows the speed bump on the way towards progress, I guess. A more progressive society. Yeah. Yeah. It's perfect. It's it's funny, but it also makes a point. Yeah. In the first 30 minutes of the movie, it's fantastic. Another scene to contrast that is like later on in the movie... He goes into the office, uh, like people like sort of, they're trying to fight against their, their parking violations. Oh, their traffic violations. oh yeah. Yes. And um, this guy's like going in and he's like explaining, oh, like uh, I, I didn't know what, what the time was. It was like a pretty old guy. And this like young woman who was, who was there. It's like, oh yeah, this happens to me as well. When, when I was like with my girlfriend uh, the other day and like we like missed the parking spot. And I'm like the casualness of, of acceptance of, of sexuality um, or different sexualities is just really, really great to see. And I, I know that Wiseman himself is not like s- with filming, he's not like steering us in like a direction like, oh, we're going to focus on like LGBTQ stuff or what the government is doing about racial breakdowns of, of the government. But it's just like how it is. And this this is how American society is like progressing in, in a way. He shows how those questions permeate all levels of policymaking and work that the city needs to do. That so-called little reveal of that workers' sexuality is so mundane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's such a great include. And I love how it comes about because it's also weird that this public service worker suddenly is telling me about her personal life, <laughs> trying to avoid parking tickets, which is just kind of cute and weird. Like, why are you telling me this? Just dismiss my ticket and let me go. <laughs> it's nice. It's, it's even... Yeah, it's even, very nice. Even in bureaucracy, there manages to be a little spontaneous little connection that strikes yeah. up and it's so nice ah it's yeah. so sweet <laughs> i think another example of this like oh this small little scene sort of embodying a, a larger idea that wiseman's trying to explore with the film is in in jackson heights there's this really small scene where this woman is teaching these three like non-americans about like how to, to pass their citizenship test 
And I, I don't know what exactly she was like. She was asking them. Oh, she was like, oh, why do you want to be an American? And then they had to remember to like say so- something like, I want to be able to vote. But one of the ladies there keeps on saying, I want to be able to practice my religion freely. But she doesn't say it as clear, but she keeps on saying freedom of religion, freedom of religion, freedom of religion. And the lady teaching her finally like is just like, yeah, yes, I, I guess you can use that. And I'm thinking, like, I think that her being able to practice her religion is actually the reason why she, maybe she is in America or why she wants to be an American. And I think in a larger sense in Jackson Heights shows how m- so many different religious groups are able to live in one small community. You, you, you see a mosque, you see a Hindu temple, you see a synagogue, you see a Catholic church. In that moment, the instructor who's preparing the three people for the immigration test, she's acting as, unintentionally, she's acting as a force to conform them to say the answer, I want to vote. But the woman who keeps on saying that she's here for freedom of religion is authentically representing herself. And I think that also reflects a broader trend in in Jackson Heights, wherein different forces from the outside keep on trying to conform this neighborhood and get it to homogenize. But that's not authentic to the neighborhood. And yeah, Wiseman is presenting a bit of a community that's endangered by these external forces. Again, that's why In Jackson Heights feels so essential to me. It's filmed at this very specific moment, and it couldn't have been filmed any other time and have this message. It really feels like a teetering point in a way that's kind of saddening. Though I will note that I looked up about the Business Improvement District, and earlier this year, there was a movement to expand the BID that went into effect in Jackson Heights. And it didn't go through because of the work of activists to halt the expansion of the BID. So pendulum of history, right? Yes, pendulum of history. What do you think about like the use of these kind of musical sequences that he kind of, he intersperses them in a lot of his movies he does this like Mm -hmm. different musical different musical sequences that seem to, at least for me on the surface, just are there to break up the monotony of listening to people talk. Mm -hmm. I think it's part of the specificity of everyday life. It's the same with food. There's always food that pops up in both of these movies. People eat, people drink, people celebrate, uh, people play and listen to music. And yes, they serve as interstitials and sort of palate cleansers, but they're also a reminder of the texture of everyday life. I also do think that um, Wiseman himself has an interest in performing and he also has these docs that he makes that some people call like his 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 performative docs so he made two films about the ballet he made a film about the a french ballet company and a, he made a film about the new york city ballet company even though i don't agree with it but a hilarious review of city hall um is that as someone writes a lot of people think that this is one of Wiseman's best institutional docs. Well, I think it's one of his best performative docs <laughs> <laughs> because of how everyone in government is. <laughs> like <laughs> Wiseman is is making movies to this day. Um, however, in Jackson Heights, which is his 40th film, which came out in 2015, he tried to crowdfund to finish the film because he did not have enough money to finish this film. And unfortunately, he did not make his fundraising goal, which 
just goes to show the state of documentary funding is right now. But he, he has a quote. He has a small quote. He says, fundraising is one of the hardest aspects of filmmaking and has only gotten more difficult. But the moment that you think you're entitled to this money is the moment you should stop because you have to act as if each film is your first film and you have to put in the same energy into raising the money. Damn. Uh, yeah. The man's still doing it at 90. He's crazy. 90 years old. If, you, if you've gotten this far into this episode of the podcast, you and you haven't seen Wiseman's work, I really do hope that you go out of your way to check it out. They're long movies, but I, I personally guarantee you that you will come out of it having learned a lot and having experienced something that I feel like is really unique. I will say I've been less bored by his four-hour-long movies than by some 90-minute narrative films. Yeah. For sure. Yes. (laughs) Like, there are definitely worse things to waste your time on. (laughs) Knowing that we are recording this in a pandemic and that we're talking about in Jackson Heights, I know from the news that Jackson Heights is actually one of the places that was hit the hardest when New York was one of the epicenters of the pandemic. All I can really say is that my heart goes out to them because I know they were struggling a lot, especially in the first early months of the pandemic. And I'm sure they're still struggling now. So, And of course, it's disproportionately affecting communities of black and brown people. Like watching it made me feel very like my hands tied behind my back because I'm here sitting halfway mm-hmm. across the world. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess if you can do anything, do something, wear a mask, especially if you're in America. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Please wear Please. a mask. Even watching from New York, it feels like watching from very far away, both geographically and temporally. It really feels like already kind of a time capsule, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Having moved away from New York, I, I, it was a little bit of an emotional watch because I, I feel like there's a, so many aspects of... Like, I, I think Wiseman really understands what makes New York so special as a city. There's a really special place in my heart for New York and it just made me think about it a bit more this week special place in our hearts for frederick wiseman oh yeah if you're listening to no he's not oh he's not gonna be listening to this but (laughs) if mr wiseman is listening to this i love your number one fan (laughs) i love Um, you frederick wiseman okay (laughs) so thank you all for listening to this episode of deep cut please be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. And thank you to Justina Yam for creating our artwork. Yay! See you guys on the next podcast episode. Be well. Take care. Please wear a mask.